You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit harvestyorkregion.ca. All right, let's get our Bibles out this morning and turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, if you uh, didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be uh, one around you in the seats there. The book of Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 20 as we continue in our series, The Ten Commandments. Uh, last week, we look, took a look at a message entitled, God on the Throne, and uh, this week, we're going to take a look at a message entitled, God on the Mantle. Um, in my ministry over the last number of years, I've had opportunity to be in at least one home uh, where we were preparing to do a funeral for uh, a young adult who came to our church, but parents didn't follow the Lord. They were totally of another faith, and as we were in their home preparing for that funeral, we sat, and I looked up, and across up on the mantle, there was a Buddha, um, because that's what they worshiped, and uh, and I don't know about you, but as I'm driving down McCowan, that may not be the right term because you're not usually moving very fast when you're coming down McCowan, but often you look out and you'll see, and on the dashboard of somebody's car, there will be, it's almost like a shrine, and, uh, and people are worshiping these things. And uh, so today's message is uh, God on the mantle, or if you would, uh, God on the dashboard, um, the Bible clearly says some things about these things. And as we saw last week when we were looking at God on the throne, we see this week about images and what God's word says about them. So you've got your uh, Bible open now. Let's stand together. We want to honor God as we read his word because that's what really matters around here. What does God's word say? And here's what it says starting at verse one. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land of, that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. 
The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Lord, how amazing it is that we can hold this truth in our hands, the truth of your word, but the truth of these verses that we have just read that were laid down to um, your people, uh, laws for them to live by. Laws, Lord, all of them repeated in the New Testament. All of them, Lord, that we need to examine and see and come under for your honor, for your glory. Lord, as we uh, think about the weight of this message this week, no other gods before me, no gods on the mantle, no gods on the dashboard, but what about the gods of our heart? And so, Lord, as we take a look at this text today, would you do a work in us? The only way we can explain it is look what the Lord has done. Take your word, use it powerfully in the power of your spirit for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you can take your seats. Well, as I already mentioned last week, God on the throne was a two-point message. The first point was, uh, look what I have done. We're talking about what the Lord has done in uh, verse uh, two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of that place where you were that you didn't want to be, but you couldn't get out on your own. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, the condition that you had that you couldn't change. And he starts out at the beginning of the Ten Commandments by just reminding us about who God is, but what God has done for us. And so the first point was, look what I have done. And then the second point we looked at last week was, it's all about me all about me. No, not this me or you. It's God speaking. And he says, hey, it's about me. And if you don't get that right, you're never going to get into a good place. It's always going to be a struggle for you because God is saying it's all about me. He says it in verse two, you shall have no other gods before me. And uh, we explored that and thought about it and looked at it. And well, the next command really comes out of that. And it just logically makes sense to follow after that where it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is under the water. No images, no images. Okay, you've heard me say it before. Now, so you're gonna hear me say it again. Context, context, context. Context is everything. You've heard the person who says, well, you shouldn't wear a cross around your neck because the Bible says, don't make any images. I grew up in a church that couldn't even have a cross in the worship center because it was an image. It was an image. So let's just look and see what God's word plainly sees. Most heresy is because people don't read the verse before and the verse after. And so if you just take verse four and put it in context, you'll see it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he says, don't make any images. And then in verse five, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord, your God, and I am a jealous God. And this is about images that people worship. We don't make any images that anybody is going to worship. There were lots of images that were used in the Old Testament. They had cherubim, they had all kinds of things that, that they made, but they weren't to worship them. 
And so the person who has a cross around their neck, don't go jumping all over them unless they're rubbing it and praying to it. Well, then you can have a chat with them because now they've crossed over and they've made an image that they worship. It's not forbidden to have images. It's forbidden when we worship the image. It becomes wrong when we worship the creature rather than the creator. That was part of the struggle in Romans 1, 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. An idol is an image representing a deity or something to which worship is addressed. An image in your home that you pray to is wrong. An image in the church that you bow, bow down to is wrong. Sue and I were at a funeral just a couple of months ago in a church that, um, and everybody who went in that was from that church came in and bowed to the image. They bowed to the image. I'm sure probably most of them don't even think about that, but they're worshiping the image. They're bowing to the image. Well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, here's what happens when we make images that reflect who God is. When we make images that reflect who God is, here's two things that I wrote down. First of all, it confines him. We bring God down to our size. You confine God. His transcendence disappears when all of a sudden it's just an image that you see. God in his holiness, God in his um, deserving of adoration and God who deserves praise and God who is just and God who is loving and God who is jealous and God who is full of mercy and God is full of grace. We, we lose all of that when we put God in this box, when we bring God down to our size. Here's another thing that idols do. Idols make him fit into my mold. He fits into the mold of what I want him to be. And so God tells us, no images. Don't worship any images. And you're like, well, why did I bother coming to church today? I don't have anything on my mantle. I don't have anything on my dashboard. I don't, I don't even wear a cross around my neck. Like I'm off the hook. Pastor, thank you. I get a pass on this one. Uh, no. We're all guilty of this in some way. And we may not have created images that we wear around our neck or put on a mantle or stick on our dashboard, but all of us in some way at some time in our life have made images in our mind. We've created things that become God to us, that become the focus of who God should be and, and what he deserves We've come to a place where God gets set aside off of the throne and our time and our attention and our passion and our priority and our praise and our adoration is given to something else. And so it might not be an image that you can touch, but it's an image that you see and it's an image that in your mind and in your life you bow to more and more often than you would even like to admit. God's clear command to us is, 
You shall not make for yourself an image. Nothing to bow down to. Nothing to worship. Nothing that takes God off of the throne and puts anything else in its place. I've used four words to describe what the gods of today are, especially for Christians in the church. I'm going to give you the four words, but then I'm going to break them out into a bunch of different words so you can see how it applies. But I think the gods that we struggle with, I think the God on the mantle in our lives, the thing that we wrestle through, probably comes under one of these four, four categories. I'd say fame, fortune, power, pleasure. There you go. Those are the gods of today. Those are the things that you're going to struggle with. Those are the, the attributes. Those are the qualities that you're going to find that put up on the throne when you set God aside and kind of push him out of the way. Um, I want to be famous. I want fortune. I want power. Or the God of pleasure. Well, what do they look like? How are they revealed? I wrote down a bunch of words. They're revealed in the, the worship of self. You go, what? Yeah, when you worship yourself, when you decide you want what you want more than you want what God wants, you become the image. And you worship yourself. There's a whole school of thought out there that says, I am God, and they just find the God in you and all the rest. Of it. We're not even talking about that. We're just talking about in your priorities. And I'm selfish, and I'm going to get what I want, Lord. Get out of the way. And the God of self becomes your image. Here's one. Your spouse. Your spouse. You're like, I don't worship my spouse. Really? I've heard people say these words. He worships the ground she walks on. Okay, if you're saying those words, like you understand, you're already way over the line. You just, you just need to slap yourself across the face and go, what in the world was I thinking? But how often in our relationships and in our love for our spouse, do we set aside the priority of who God is and his exaltation and his glory and, and Sue becomes the priority in my life that she's not supposed to be? She's not supposed to be on the throne. And neither am I. God is on the throne. Is it wrong to love my wife? Of course not. Love your wife like Christ loved the church. But she's not on the throne. Maybe it's your spouse. Or maybe it's your family, your kids. You've heard people say, my family means everything to me. It, it sounds good. But it's wrong. God means everything to you. Your family can't mean everything to you. Because if they do and something happens, you're going so far off the rails, you're going to a very bad place. Because God's not on the throne. And you've made your family your God. Well, you're saying that we're not supposed to have a high priority for our family? Yeah, you are. Train up a child in the way he should go. And fathers are to love their children, not to provoke them. And they're a huge priority in our lives, as is our spouse. But they can never replace God on the throne. 
or they become an image that we worship. Now, what about your friends? Some of you are pushing God off to the side on the throne and putting a friend up there or putting your friends up there. And you know it's true by what you do every Friday night, by what you decide you're going to go out and do. And it's like, oh yeah, Lord, out of the way, out of the way, out of the way. My grandma used to say, could you take Jesus with you where you're going? Right? I hated that. Just hated that. <laughs> the, the, the wrong thing about the question is it's not an option. Right? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's, he's in you, he's going with you. But it was a great way for her just to kind of go, and you kind of go, stop it. But we put friends on the throne and they become the image that we worship. And I don't want to lose that friend. I don't want to lose that relationship. And so I'm willing to sacrifice what God has said. I'm willing to sacrifice what he wants for me. I'll put my friend on the throne. How about this one? You've created the image. It's called your job. It's called your job. And it's more important to you than your relationship with Jesus Christ is. And you know it because you choose to cut corners and do things that aren't legal. You know it because you put it ahead of your time with God in the word and in prayer. And you worship your job. And you say, well, no, no, but, I'm, but I'm afraid that, that I could lose my job. Who's on the throne? If you have to lose your job for the glory of God, here's what I know for sure. He's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of you. But we're fearful. God on the throne. So does that mean we don't have to work hard? You need to be the best worker your employer ever hired. And if you're an employer, you need to be the most godly employer your employees have ever seen. But God isn't on the throne when your job is on the throne. You have to work. You have to go and get a job. I've said it a number of times in the last few weeks. If you don't have a job, your full-time job is go and get a job. And when you're there, you need to be faithful and you need to be hard work. You need to be the example. You need to be the model of what a good worker is. And the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. So I'm not saying that it's not important but it's not first. It's not first. Maybe you worship your job. Maybe you worship your finances or your stuff. I just got to have more. I just got to have more. I got to have this thing and then I got to have this thing and then I got to have this thing. I got to have this much in my retirement account. I've got to have, are those things wrong? They're not necessarily wrong, but they're in the wrong priority and, and those things have you and you're worshiping them because you put them ahead of your obedience to give to the Lord your obedience to serve and help other people because you're holding on to them and you're holding on to them. And in essence, they become your God and, and that's what you are worshiping. No other gods, nothing else that we worship, nothing else becomes the priority. Education. Education can be your God. I've got to get this done. I've got to have this thing. I've watched too many parents sacrifice their children at the altar of education. More concerned about their education than they are about their spiritual walk. Well, no, but they gotta have it. They gotta have it. What will they fall back on? How about God? 
Is it wrong to go to university? Of course not. It's a great thing to go to university. And everybody who can should. And when you go, you should do the best that you can. But for some parents, it's about it's the only thing. And so, no, 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 where's your son? How come he's not at church? He's studying for exams. Really? He's not worshiping God so he can study for calculus. See, I never studied for calculus, so I can use that illustration. <laughs> and we worship education. Or we worship our health or fitness. Now, obviously, I don't have a struggle with worshiping fitness. Um, but some of you in the room might. It's interesting, as I drive down uh, McCowan, actually drive down McCowan on Sunday morning, and you come to the mall, and there's the fitness place in the mall there, and there's like 200 cars parked out there. The mall's not open, so they're not shopping. They're all at the fitness center. They're all worshiping on the treadmill or on the weights or on the... Now, is, everybody, is it wrong what they're doing? No, it's not wrong, but it's wrong when it becomes the thing. And, and your fitness... And even your health comes before your relationship with Almighty God. And then people have their own religions. I'm not even talking about that today. We're talking about us and the family of God. And here's the last one I wrote down. Um, your popularity. Your popularity. It's more important for me to be liked. I'll compromise on things I shouldn't compromise on so that I can be liked by people. And you set aside God on the throne and you do things that you wouldn't do if you really believed God was on the throne. A clear command. Don't make for yourself any image that you bow to, that you worship, that you give attention, time, passion, priority, praise, adoration. If it comes before God, you've made an image. And God says, don't do it. He says, don't do it because the uh, consequences are extreme. Uh, look at verse five. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. We talked briefly last week that God is a jealous God. In Exodus 34, 14, and 15, we saw, saw that last week. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous. When people talk, what's the names of God? What's the names of God? We love to say love and truth and mercy and grace. And, hey, how about jealous his name is Jealous, is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. God is a jealous God when something that belongs to him is given to another. God is a jealous God when something that belongs to him is given to another. Our jealousy is generally based on dissatisfaction about what God has given us. Um, some, of the, some of the things that we would see in jealousy that we have would be jealousy coming out of fear or coming out of insecurity or out of weakness or failure out of, or out of a sense of entitlement. But God is jealous for who he is. And God is jealous for what is his. 
God is jealous for who he is and God is jealous for what he is. And so when you make an image, when you have something else on the throne, you're putting that thing ahead of God's character and God is jealous for that. Here's the other thing that's really cool. God is jealous for me. God is jealous for us, his children. In uh, 1 Peter 2.19 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In Ephesians 1.14, it says that, that Jesus is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God is jealous for you. Well, what does godly jealousy look like for us? Is there a place where it's right for us to be jealous? Well, if the illustration is when something that belongs to him is given to another. Now that's when God is jealous. Well, something that belongs to you is given to another or taken by another. Well, then there can be a place for jealousy. The problem is we get it wrong probably 99% of the time because we start to think that everything is ours. The next breath you have isn't yours. God gives it to you. All the stuff you have, it isn't yours. It's God's stuff. You're just a steward of it. And so if you want to, in holiness and godliness, care for and be jealous for those kind of things, that's right. But you have to do that in a right way. Uh, Paul sought to do it, but he even seemed to struggle as he said it, even in scripture in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 3, he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. For I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You want to be jealous about something? You be jealous about your kids' walk with the Lord. You be jealous with your walk with the Lord. You be jealous with your spouse's walk with the Lord. You'd be jealous for that person who you had the privilege to sit and pray with when they trusted Jesus Christ. God is jealous for who he is, for his glory, for his worship, for his praise, for his adoration. And God is jealous for what is his, his creation and his, his children well, I said, the point is there are extreme consequences. So look back down at the text. It says, in verse five, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. When we get worship with God wrong, when we get the wrong things on the throne, and that's what the world does all of the time, says so the impact of what you do goes to the third and fourth generation. Let the weight, the heaviness, the seriousness of what he's saying in this text sit on you a little bit. Now, I think about it in the, the consequences in our family. The things that I do, 
They can have an impact, not just on myself and Sue, but on our kids, Carl and Beth and their spouses, and on my five grandchildren, and hold on, and even one more generation. See, this isn't to be played with. God on the throne. No other gods. Because the impact to the third and the fourth generation. Wow. The Lord is also slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Numbers 14 and verse um, verse 18. Does that mean we're trapped? Does that mean that because my father, now my father wasn't my father, loved the Lord and my mom did too and I didn't grow up with this, but some of you did. And some of you actually believe that the consequences of what they did are being forced on you and there's nothing you can do about it. There's a teaching out there that says that, that what's going on is three, four generations and there's nothing you can do about it. That's hogwash. It's not true. It's not found in the Bible and it's surely not true for the followers of Jesus Christ. The people who say that just don't read the whole text. Look what it says about these verses. It says, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Of those who hate me. So if you uh, think you're caught in the chain and you're like the second link in the chain, here's how you break the chain. You love God. You love God and the chain is broken. He goes right on and in the next verse he talks about um, the, the assured redemption that we have. It's found in verse 6. He says, but show, showing steadfast love to those who love me and keep my commandments. And we are not defeated in Jesus Christ. The Bible says we are more than conquerors in Christ. The power of sin is dealt with and crushed because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. He says to them, you want to break the chain? Then you love me. You want to break the chain? Then you obey me. You, you keep my commandments. Jesus said in Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And about the commandments, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We break the chain. We crush the consequences by the finished work of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And if you're feeling the weight of what you think is generational sin, 
then the first thing you do to crush that, to break that chain is you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You transfer the trust from yourself and what you believe in and what you think your hope is in and you put it in Jesus Christ alone. The righteous lamb of God who gave his life, who the only one who could suffer for us so we could have eternal life. The one who shed his blood in my place. The one who all of my sin by faith is put on him and all of his righteousness is put on me and the chain is broken and sin is crushed because of the finished work of Jesus Christ and what I do. Well, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It all comes because God is gracious and God is loving and he pours it out on us and I turn from my sin. I turn from what I was hoping in. I turn from what I thought I could do. And I put my faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I'm saved. Really? It's that easy? You can't do enough to earn it. You can't make enough money. You can't try hard enough. God's standard is no sin and you will never get there. Except by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we trust Jesus Christ, there's a judicial act, as it were, that happens. It's called justification. When all of your sin is put on Christ and all of his righteousness is put on you, you are made clean. What does that mean? You'll never sin again? Not based on my experience. But it means that we're forgiven. It means that the blood of Christ covers our sin. No other gods. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father not by another religion, not by another means, not by working harder. No man comes to the Father except through me. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Well, so what? So what? In Matthew 4, 10 and 11, it says, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. No other gods. And then the devil left him. And behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. I said that with each one of the laws, as we go through them, each one of the 10 commandments, we're gonna take a look at four words. They're, they're in your notes. The, the first word is revelation. Well, so what? The revelation. What is God saying? God in his word, plainly, what does he say? No other gods before me. You don't make for any images that you will worship. That's what he's saying. That's the revelation. So what is he saying to you in that revelation today? What is the confrontation? How does that intersect with your life? What idol have you put before or instead of him? 
Uh, that's the confrontation that you felt as I was preaching through the text and, and you were like, oh, oh, I wish he just talked about Buddha on the mantle and the thing on people's dashboards and didn't get into the things that I find in my life. See, that's the confrontation that's happening. That's not coming from me. It's coming from God's spirit working in you. The confrontation. And then there's the instruction. What have I learned? What have I learned? As I sat here for 38 minutes so far, as that guy stands up there and preaches, what have I learned? What has God placed on my heart to do? That's the instruction. And what is it for you today? What is the thing that as you've come, you've seen it and heard it? I, I want to say, what was the nugget for you? In this case, it's not a nugget because it's about who you worship. It's about who's on the throne. It's about everything. And if we get it wrong, we get it all wrong. And so what is the instruction? And then what is the transformation? What difference will it make? I came to church, I heard a message, I was confronted with the truth, I've been instructed in it, I know in my heart what I'm going to do. What are you going to do? That's the transformation. When we put reality to what we've heard, when we take it and we do something as a result, when you get to that place where, see, if it was just something on your mantle, you could take it and hit it with a hammer and it would be gone. But it's in your heart it's much more difficult to deal with. But will you deal with it? That friend who's getting the worship that belongs to God, that spouse or family or education or that thing that's in the wrong place, what will you do to get God back on the throne and get him to the place that he deserves to be? The transformation. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any image to worship. What have you been worshiping this week? What have you allowed to crawl up on the throne and will you cry out to God today and get it right and get him back to the place that he deserves to be? God is jealous for who he is and what is his. Let's make sure that we keep him on the throne. Let's pray. Lord God, this is your word and we thank you for it. We pray, Lord, that as we have heard it, that you will uh, work in our hearts and our lives just, just to come and hear another talk and go home and no change. No, God, your spirit is working in this place. There's things we need to do as a result of being here. Would you give us a, a passion for you that would be willing to set aside whatever it is that has displaced you, that has become our act of worship? And Lord, if it's a physical thing that we are physically bowing to, to crush it, because it is evil, it is wrong. But Lord, it's probably in our heart. It's probably in our decisions. And we need to crush it just the same so that you would get the fame. You would get the glory. Jesus Christ was the one who came and paid a price I couldn't pay. He was the one who came and 
solve the problem of my sin that I could not solve. Father, you and your son and your spirit working in us, that's who we worship. But we wrestle with it and we struggle with it. So Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. Understanding the seriousness of the consequence of failing to keep you on the throne. But also understanding the forgiveness and the hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. Do this work in our hearts for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.